Hi friends, my name is Tyler, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Arcadia. Thank you for tuning in today to our online weekly video service. We hope that you're staying safe out there, and we hope that you're remaining in the hope of the Lord during this strange time. I was actually talking recently with my wife about how strange it has been to move to a new state and start serving at a new church and having weekly corporate gatherings with you, and then to not be able to do that anymore. It's been strange for us as well, and we miss meeting with you, but we hope we'll be able to meet with you again sometime soon. I've been encouraged during this time that though we haven't been able to go to church, that Redemption Arcadia has continued to be the church. The call of the church has not changed. The church, we remain gospel-centered, outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. So we hope that you'll continue to be the church during this time through phone calls and texts and email and online interactions with these videos and social media. If you want to find out more about us, you can go to arcadia.redemptionaz.com and learn how to connect with us further. So now we're going to worship, we're going to hear from the Word, and we're going to celebrate that God continues to work in our lives during even this strange time. We hope that you'll continue to connect with us in this way. Let's worship. Daddy. 
I will be 
Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is Ben. Today's reading is from Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, Redemption Arcadia, it's good to be with you uh, this Sunday. Uh, my name is Frank Switzer. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. If you're new, welcome. We're glad that you are here. I want to wish you Happy Mother's Day. Uh, I will tell you, though, it wishing Happy Mother's Day on a day like today with what we're going to be talking about and working through feels a little bit incongruent. It doesn't feel too celebratory, but I want to mention mothers. I like mothers. I had one myself. My wife's a mother. Uh, glad for them, but um, kind, of a, kind of some challenging stuff to work through today. I hope you'll stay with us. I think it's going to be very, very helpful, but uh, before we get to the sermon, I wanted to start with something else. Um, we're what, eight or nine weeks now into this pandemic uh, shutdown and, and stay in uh, shelter in place and, and all of that. And it has not been good. Uh, we realize that. Uh, Health-wise, people are sick and people are dying. Uh, the economy is taking a huge hit. And psychologically, mentally, emotionally, this has been very hard on people. And most of us would, would uh, really like the pandemic to just go away. Uh, but we were reminded this week, I think, that um, our real problem in life is not circumstantial. It's not the pandemic. Our real problem in life is existential. It's sin. Um, just watching other events unfold, and in particular, I would uh, mention the, uh, the killing of Ahmad Arbery. Uh, watching those kinds of things unfold uh, reminds me that our problem isn't the pandemic. Our problem is human nature. Our problem is sin. That is what creates the circumstances that we live in that are, that are so devastating and difficult uh, and troublesome. And again, I said this a few weeks ago, I'll remind you that those of us that would like to just get back to normal, <laughs> we need to remember that normal wasn't that great either. Uh, normal is filled with the corruption of sin. Uh, it's just a completely different set of problems. I mentioned that, um, you know, 10 weeks ago, we had plenty of other things that we were all whining and complaining about. Uh, now it seems focused on the virus, but the events of this last week just remind us it's not the virus. It's, it's human nature. It's the corruption of sin. I was uh, talking with the Tylers yesterday and um, kind of working through this. Very difficult to kind of work through some of this stuff. Uh, finding the appropriate way to address it. And um, they both have been reading or have read uh, a, a book of prayers that I haven't read. But there was a prayer in there that was brought to my attention. And reading through this prayer, this prayer nails it. And this prayer was written way before any of this stuff happened. But this prayer nails it. And I'd like to read this prayer to you. And I want to do it as reverently as possible. And I want you to listen very closely to it. Because like I said, it just nails uh, kind of the feeling that many of us have uh, right now. And I'd like this to be our prayer uh, at Redemption Arcadia. So 
Uh, let me just work through this prayer. Please uh, put down your pandemic bagel and your lockdown coffee and, and listen carefully uh, to this. Uh, Lord God, in a world so wired and interconnected, our anxious hearts are pummeled by an endless barrage of troubling news. We are daily aware of more grief, O oh Lord, than we can rightly consider, of more suffering and scandal than we can respond to, of more hostility, hatred, horror, and injustice than we can engage with compassion. But you, O oh Jesus, are not disquieted by such news of cruelty and terror and war. You are neither anxious nor overwhelmed. You carry the full weight of the suffering of a broken world when you hung upon the cross, and you carry it still. When the cacophony of universal distress unsettles us, remind us that we are but small and finite creatures, never designed to carry the vast abstractions of great burdens, for our arms are too short and our strength is too small. Justice and mercy, healing and redemption are your great labors, Lord. And yes, it is your good pleasure to accomplish such works through your people. But you have never asked for any one of us to undertake more than your grace will enable us to fulfill. Guard us then from shutting down our empathy or walling off our hearts because of the glut of unactionable misery that floods our awareness. You have many children in many places around the globe. Move each of our hearts to compassionately respond to those needs that intersect our actual lives. That in all places, your body might be actively addressing the pain and brokenness of this world, each of us liberated and empowered by your spirit to fulfill the small part of your redemptive, redemptive work assigned to us. Give us discernment in the face of troubling news reports. Give us discernment to know when to pray. Give us discernment to know when to speak out and when to act and when to simply shut off our screens and our devices and to sit quietly in your presence, casting the burdens of this world upon the strong shoulders of the one who alone is able to bear them up. Amen. Let that be our prayer, Redemption Arcadia. And now, as I mentioned um, last week, we're going to uh, take two weeks here. We were going to move into Psalm 23, but we're going to take uh, two weeks to move into a series on unity and love in the church that's going to be rooted in Romans uh, chapter 14. And I want to start that message with this quote from Sean Trend, who wrote this in an, an, an analysis essay uh, on Wednesday of this past week. Listen to this quote. As this virus develops, flexibility will be crucial in determining how well we come out of it, and a willingness to listen to the viewpoints of those we don't generally agree with is probably the most important trait we can have. But, as with so many other things, that, that seems to be one more fatality resulting from this virus. Uh, we've all felt sort of this disorientation and this uh, problem with congruency, this problem, th this dissonance, uh, this challenge of so many opinions about what we should do, what should happen. And when we begin to root those opinions in how our theology and our grid of theology plays out in our lives, that can be a, a recipe for trouble and dissension and factions. And this is nothing new. Paul talked about this in Romans chapter 14. And if you go back and read and study the Old Testament, you see that theological factions developed even then. This is something that has been part of the human nature for, for centuries and millennia. So in the chapter we look at today and next week, which is Romans chapter 14, Paul is wrapping up the, what we would call the praxis part of his magnificent letter to the church in Rome. My favorite Bible professor years ago when I was going to Grand Canyon University was a guy named Dr. Mike Baird. And he said in one class, I remember, he said that the letter that Paul writes to the Roman church 
is the single greatest piece of literature ever produced in human history. That is high praise, high praise. And what I mean about praxis is this. Generally speaking, Paul wrote his letters sort of in a formula, a a type of formula, where the first 50 to 70% of his letter was uh, strong teaching, strong doctrine. He was laying out the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is, our redemption through the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the type of teaching that, that we build our theology on and that takes great study and understanding to discern and to, and to work through. But somewhere about halfway through his letter or maybe a little bit further, eventually he gets to a word that we translate as therefore. He says therefore, and then the rest of the letter is what we would call the praxis part of the letter, the practical application of what he's been teaching about the gospel that lived out in our lives. In, in the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters are that doctrinal part of the letter, the laying out of the gospel, the gospel truth of Jesus Christ, that we're sinners and that he has died for us to redeem us and give us new life through his resurrection. But starting at the beginning of chapter 12, he says, therefore, because this good news that I've just presented to you is true, Walk your life out this way. Live your life out this way. In Philippians, he says it uh, in this way. Therefore, I urge you to live your life in a manner that is worthy of your calling in the gospel. That's his signal that he's moving into uh, that praxis part of the letter. Here's specifically what he says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, there's that sign that he's moving into praxis by the mercies of God because everything in the first 11 chapters is true. The gospel of Christ has saved you through grace by faith. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Live for God, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is. In other words, walk this way. Be transformed because the gospel is true and Christ is now in you. And and then he works through all of chapter 12 and all of chapter 13, teaching us practical application of what the gospel means in our life. And and chapters 12 and 13 uh, in the Christian world are well known and much revered. And then we get to chapter 14, our chapter for this little mini-series. And Chapter 14 is a part of this praxis, but frankly, it's not as well known or revered in the Christian world. Chapter 14 is Paul's exhortation on love, humility, unity, and acceptance in the midst of something we all call disputable matters, and we'll get into that. We might call, around Redemption Church, we might call disputable matters, we might call them open-handed issues, So closed-handed issues are things such as these that I'm going to list, but not limited to just these things, but here are some examples of closed-handed issues. These issues have been uh, firmly decided by Scripture. There's no wiggle room on these things. So things like the historical and efficacious reality of Christ's resurrection, the authority of the Bible in the life of a believer, Salvation by grace through faith and not through works. The biblical sexual ethic. And there are many others. But there are also other items in the Christian faith where it is more more open to interpretation and what Paul calls conscience. It's open to interpretation and you're conscious. We would call these open-handed Issues. They're things that we can discuss and debate and hold differing views on, but they shouldn't divide us, but they do. The problem is with these open-handed issues, these disputable matters, is that sincere, honest, thoughtful, and committed people disagree with them. And the biggest problem is that for 2,000 years, Christians have mostly sucked at disagreeing while still loving and accepting one another. That's our problem. Paul knew it in the Roman church 2,000 years ago, and it still happens today. Mostly what we do with our doctrine, 
with our doctrinal positions, it seems, is that we just draw lines in the sand and then we judge and mock others who don't line up with us. It was true in Paul's day, it's true today. 2020 has been a fascinating year. We at Redemption Church started 2020 before any of this virus stuff came out. We started 2020 thinking that our greatest challenge this year was going to be to navigate with hopefully love and tolerance, navigate our congregations through the election in November of 2020. Now, that tension that is coming from this year's election cycle looks a little bit like child's play compared to the debate, disagreement, judgment, mocking, and antipathy that is surrounding our current virus crisis. So the lead team got together, as I mentioned, and decided a week and a half ago, to change the preaching calendar in order to take a couple of weeks to talk about this disputable matters issue through the lens of Romans chapter 14, which is exactly why Paul wrote Romans chapter 14. It helped us today. And the way we decided to do the two weeks at Arcadia was to simply split the chapter in two. We're going to do the first 12 verses today, and next week we'll do verses 13 through 23. And then on May 24th, we'll begin Psalm 23 for five weeks. So let's dive in. Uh, let me start by saying this. Anywhere that you and I look in the New Testament letters, whether it's Paul or John or Peter or James, we find these authors constantly pointing us to our unity in Christ. They're constantly pointing us to Jesus and to the fact that we should be one in the Spirit, one in Christ together. We're going dis to disagree on things but we are one in Christ. We have Jesus, we have deliverance, we have hope, we have the resurrection, we have restoration. We've been given grace and mercy and blessing and we've been loved and we've been loved radically and ruthlessly by God through Jesus Christ. And this commonality that we have in Jesus is what should drive us ecclesiastically, should drive us relationally, drive us practically, and it should drive us existentially. And the authors pound away on this point. And we Christians for centuries have pretty much ignored that, just not good at it. Much of the time, what we do is we use our faith as a weapon to get what we want, to initiate and inflict, inflict our agenda, and to set ourselves up in authority and superiority to others, because we're somehow more studied on a particular issue than others. So Paul addresses this problem in his context in Romans 14, and we'll look at that, but it applies to us in our context today. See, the majority 21st century Christian experience is not, is not, we both love Jesus. We have Jesus in common, so let's start from there and work together from there. But rather, the majority 21st century Christian experience is, yes, right, we're both Christians. We're, we both believe in Jesus. So why don't you see it my way? That's been the experience. In other words, we use Jesus to divide and not to unite. That specifically goes through against everything that's taught in the New Testament. And I've already said it. By the way, if you want evidence for this very quickly, just log on to Twitter and look at what's going on there with Christians on Twitter. It's fascinating. Now, I've already said it, but I'll say it again. Good, sincere people of faith should have honest disagreements and debate about the application of the wisdom of our faith while remaining steadfastly unified in the hope of the gospel. But we struggle to do that last part. It's just our natural proclivity to end up using our faith to divide and judge and mock. It's true politically, and now it's true virally. And so what we're going to do is very simply just some textual work in verses 1 through 12. And of course, along the way, there's going to be plenty of application for us. And if we were to have a title for the, these 12 verses, here's what the title would be. Love necessitates humility of opinions. Love necessitates humility of opinions. So let's start with those first four verses that Paul writes. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Verse 3 there, that's like the center point of this whole thing. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, we're going to spend the bulk of our time on these four verses because it just sets everything else up and everything just flows from that. So again, love necessitates humility of opinions. Paul specifically says, do not quarrel over opinions. You can have opinions and you should have opinions, but don't end up using those opinions to divide. So here's what's going on in the Roman church. I'm going to say that a couple times. Here's what's going on. Here's what's going on because there's some points of, of context that we need to unpack. So in the Roman church, when Paul writes, just understand, everybody just loves Jesus. Everybody, they, they love Jesus, just like Redemption Church. We love Jesus. But in the Roman church, there were two factions of people who loved Jesus. And they had very different opinions about what that meant for their lives. So the two factions were this. There were the Jewish Christians, so ethnically they were Jewish, they were rooted in the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law. And they believed that being a Christian meant that you really needed to keep the Mosaic Law. And then the other major faction were the Gentiles, the non-Jewish Christians. And they believed that being a Christian means that we are free in Christ. They didn't have the context of the Mosaic Law. And frankly, they weren't that worried about it because of what the message of the gospel had taught them. So these factions are at each other. And both factions have convictions about their positions, and both are committed and studied in their convictions. But their convictions and passion are dividing them. They have left behind their commonality in Jesus, which should supersede judgment and mocking disdain. And Paul is calling them out on that. So what's happening is that the Jews are standing in harsh judgment over the Gentiles for refusing to hunker down and bend their knee to the Mosaic law. And the Gentiles have a mocking disdain for the Jews because the Jews believe that sanctity comes from following the law and not from the grace of Jesus. Now, there's some irony here. Paul is a Jew. Paul is a converted Jew. He's a Christian now, but he grew up as a Jew, and in fact, he was a Pharisee. Uh, he, he knew the Old Testament law as well or better than anybody, but now he lives in the grace of Christ. But he's ethnically a Jew. These are his people in one of the faction. And the irony is that he is describing the weak ones. You saw that word, weak. He's describing the weak ones as the ones exalting the law. He's describing the weak ones as the Jews. And they are weak not because they're immature, but they're weak because they believe that Jesus alone is not enough. They are weak because they lack a robust understanding of the completeness and finality of what Christ did on the cross. But also, don't get too far ahead of yourself, Paul isn't just rebuking the Jews in Romans chapter 14. He's rebuking both factions, and we're going to see even more of that next week in the second half of this chapter. But this text of, of Romans chapter 14 is not a who's right and who's wrong text, but instead it's a Paul saying, you're both skating on thin ice here. You both have some work to do. And verse 3 is the verse that bears out that position. Here's what he says in verse 3. Do not let the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So here's what, eats what? Here's what's happening. Jews piously will not eat meats that may have been sacrificed to false gods or that contain blood. And the problem in Rome is that at most of the Roman markets where you would buy meat, much of that meat, if not all of that meat, was probably at one time sacrificed to a false god or an idol before it was brought to the market. And the Jews said, we're not going to eat that meat. We're not supposed to eat any meat that's, that's uh, sacrificed to idols. 
And I think we can understand that. That was an issue of conscience for them. That's, that was their context. They were rooted in this. They grew up in this. And so I think we can understand why they stand there. Also, they have Daniel in their history. They have Daniel, and Daniel is a hero of their faith. Daniel, in chapter one of that Old Testament book, Daniel's the guy that went to King Nebuchadnezzar under the threat of possibly losing his life and said, Nebuchadnezzar, you've told us that we're, gonna, we're supposed to eat the meat from your table. We're not gonna do it. We're only gonna eat vegetables and water. That's the reference that Paul makes there to the vegetables. So everybody's got Daniel in the back of their minds too. Daniel's a hero of the faith because he didn't eat the meat that was sacrificed to the idols. So that's the Jews' position. They're saying, we're not gonna eat meat sacrificed to idols. The problem is, is that they didn't do that and then just kind of do it for themselves. They began to judge the Gentiles because the Gentiles in their freedom in Christ were saying, everything is clean now because of Christ, so we're gonna go ahead and eat the meat. In the New Covenant, as Paul writes in verse 14, we'll get to that next week, he specifically says this. Paul writes, it's all clean now because Jesus has made everything clean through the cross and the resurrection. So the Jews are judging the Gentiles, but the Gentiles are now mocking the Jews because the Jews are judging the Gentiles. So they're pushing back. Let me just ask you a question here now. Let's just stop here and ask this question. How many of you enjoy being mocked? I, I, could, I can see you're out in the internet, in virtual land, I can see your hand. You love, you wake up in the morning thinking, I hope I get mocked all day today. Okay, so we, we got it. We don't really like to be mocked. Okay, here's another question. How many of you love to be judged? You wake up every morning thinking, I hope other people judge me. Too. I mean, I know, other than Angela on the office, who likes to be judged? Nobody. We don't like to be mocked. We don't like to be judged. Let me ask you this. Do you feel love... Do you feel loved when other people judge you or mock you? This is the problem. The faith of Christ is rooted in love, and there's no love here. That's the problem. And how many of you have already placed uh, or, uh, this current, right now, application of this principle in your minds before I've even said it? We have Christians strongly proclaiming that the Christian ethic says we must stay home no matter what and judging those who don't stay home. And we have Christians saying, but we are free in Christ. And they begin to mock those who insist on staying home. And it's everywhere. Isn't it amazing? This is some tough stuff, I know. But isn't it amazing how eventually... It seems like everything for Christians will somehow eventually get strained through their own theological conclusions, and then it's time to somehow inflict those conclusions on others as if there's no dispute. This matter settled for me. It ought to be settled for you. Well, it's really not. Okay? It's like they say, well, of course Jesus would stay home. Or, well, of course Jesus would exercise his freedom and go out. That's the argument that I hear being used. And the result, of course, is that we're judging and mocking each other. And I can't tell you how much, again, just some personal observations, I can't tell you how much in the last 33 years as a believer in Christ, I have been judged and mocked, not by non-Christians, but by Christians, by brothers and sisters in the faith. Often, we Christians take aim at our own more than we take aim at anybody else. And maybe we shouldn't be taking aim at all. That, in a nutshell, is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 14. Now, let me rewrite verse 3 in our context, and I'm going to do it a number of different ways. Three, to be exact. Here you go. Verse 3 in our context let not the one who votes Republican despise the one who votes Democrat. And let not the one who votes Democrat pass judgment on the one who votes Republican. Let not the one who prefers to worship with guitars, drums, and contemporary praise songs despise the one who prefers hymns and pipe organs. And let not the one who pines for hymns and pipe organs pass judgment on the one who's rocking out to Lincoln Brewster. Let not the one who desires to go to the park or take a walk 
Despise the one who wears a mask, even when they're at home or in their car. And let not the one who takes the stay-at-home order very seriously pass judgment on the one who wants some fresh air, sunshine, and exercise. See, here's Paul's message for us. Give grace to the Republican and to the Democrat. Give grace to the hymn lover and to the guitar lover. Give grace to the lockdown advocate and to the lockdown naysayer. And in the case of the lockdown, I hope you understand Both sides have sound theological cases, and both sides, depending on the information and data that you're putting into the models, both sides have good, strong scientific cases. That's why it's a disputable matter. Finally, in verse 4, here's what Paul tells us. Whatever position we take in these matters, we ultimately don't answer to each other, but we answer to God. Unfortunately, we act as though we are the authority and everybody should answer to us. That's what Paul's saying. So we need, to be remind, we need to be reminded, here's what God has given us. He's given us unconditional love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, and sacrifice. Remember the cross thing, the whole sacrifice, okay? Couldn't we just be a tad better about loving one another? That's the question. Now, look at these next uh, five verses, five through nine in Romans chapter 14. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. So Paul introduces another illustration of these disputable matters. Each one should be fully convinced in their own mind. You can have an opinion. You can have a position. You need to be fully convinced. Do your work. The one who observes the day Observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. So, like I said, a second illustration is introduced, honoring days. Which days do you honor? And, by the way, do you have a Sabbath every week? Well, for these two factions, this again was a huge issue. The Gentiles could not understand the Jewish obsession with all of their holy days and their feasts and their festivals, and the Gentiles also thought that the Jews were lazy for taking a Sabbath every week. But the Jews, in their minds, now think about the Jews in this context, their centuries-long opinion that the Gentiles were undignified, subhuman rubes was being clearly proven by the Gentiles' inability to see the sophistication and honor in the Jewish holy days and the Sabbath. So they're divided on this issue, too. The Roman church, the factions in the Roman church, they warred over meat, and holidays. 21st century Christians war over politics, justice, and worship music. And now we war over viruses and shelter in place. So Paul is making the same case as he did in verses four through one, but he adds something. He says, eat what you want, honor the days that you want to honor. Ostensibly, he says, vote the way you want, stay home if you want, and do your research And in each instance, be convinced of the veracity of your case. Be convinced of your political position. Be persuaded by your research into the science. And put together your philosophical case. But in love and grace, do not lord it over others. Have the opinion, but don't lord it over others. Be convinced in God and by God. But not in pride and by supposed self-anointed superiority. Because ultimately, who we answer to is God. That's who we owe our lives to. That's whose hope and promise we live in. Christ is supreme. Quick little story. Uh, Back at my old church, this is a number number of years ago, back at the old church that I led for 12 years, early in my uh, tenure there, one day, Christmas Day fell on a Sunday. You can imagine where this is going. So I remember that year distinctly. Uh, It had been a a challenging year. Our staff 
of 10 or 11 people were, we were worn out. By November 15th, we were dead on our feet. And we started to ask the question, what do you do when Christmas Day falls on a Sunday? And we started to think about the three services that we were going to have Saturday night, Christmas Eve. And one of those services wasn't going to end until well after midnight. And then having to come back the next day and do three more services when most people were probably going to just stay home anyway and be with their families. It was Christmas Day. Uh, we talked to the elders. We talked to the staff. We, we made the decision that we should probably not have church on Christmas Day. And not only did we make the decision within our own community, but we also, um, each staff member uh, took about five different churches in the valley and called those churches to find out what they were going to do on Sunday. I, was, I actually called East Valley Bible Church, so that's Redemption Gilbert today. So I called Tom's church, and, and none of the 50 churches, not one of them, were going to have services on Christmas Day. They kept calling it, several of the churches kept calling it a family day. Well, the way some reacted in our church, you would have thought I had suggested that everybody come on Sunday for an orgy. It nearly split the church. We almost had a church split over this issue. And there were a number of people who like, were just shrugging their shoulders. They're like, it makes sense to me. I wouldn't come to church if you were open on that day. It's a family day. But here's the other side of it. I had a number of people use this argument on me. And just to let you know, this argument really doesn't work. But I had a number of them use this argument on me. Well, Frank, it's pretty obvious that you just don't love Jesus. That was the standard bearer for whether or not I loved Jesus. Because we weren't going to have church on Christmas Day. So here's what Paul is saying in these verses. These matters may be important, and they may be important to you. And, and that's fine, but they are not matters that are essential to your faith and salvation. That's the problem. This is what I said earlier, scholars and academics call Paul's position on disputable matters. Now, here's what's funny. Here's what's amusing. The Greek doesn't really say disputable matters. The Greek says things indifferent. Think about that. It's things indifferent. It's things that you and I may take as important and we may feel strongly about, we may enjoy and be perplexed by, but ultimately they are things that are indifferent to the eternal scheme of God. One of the problems with these disputable matters or things indifferent is that we seem to think that there is a clear-cut, straightforward, biblical answer to every decision we make and every action and behavior we manifest in our lives. And that's simply not true. Uh, Tim Keller has written and spoken a lot about this very issue. Keller asserts that only about 20% of life's decisions and 20% of life's actions and behavior can be clearly gleaned from Scripture. The other 80%, he says, 80%? of decisions and actions come from the contextual and nuanced application of biblical wisdom. So Paul wraps up this little section with verses 10 through 12. And he writes, Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, and then he quotes out of Isaiah 43, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account for himself to God. So really, quite simply, this is Paul assuming that what he's teaching is hard and that it grinds against our grain and that we'd like, we would all like to be the exception to Romans chapter 14. So he hits us again. And he includes a verse, like I said, from Isaiah 43 to help convince us God is in charge, not us. We need humility and love not draconian opinions. And candidly, we need to understand that these aggressive disputes about temporal things that aren't essential to salvation and ultimately break relationships, it's nothing more than spiritual warfare, y'all. It's what it is. It's spiritual warfare. The enemy is not each other. When are we going to figure that out? The enemy is not sitting in our church. The enemy is Satan. 
Paul has a little section in Galatians chapter 5 where he delves into this just briefly. In, cha- in verse 15, he says, you know, if you bite and devour one another, you, you will end up destroying one another. Biting and devouring is this disputing over these things indifferent. He says, you keep doing that, you're just going to destroy each other, and Satan wins. And then what's funny to me is that right after that verse in Galatians chapter 5, he moves into the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit to remind us of who we're supposed to be in Christ. The gospel unifies us. It doesn't divide us. But then when we get into the mix, we start to have these problems. I want to end with just three statements to leave you with. Here you go. We need to be aware that in the church, there is a temptation to bring Christian people together in order to quarrel rather than to pursue love and unity. Second, we should never despise or pass judgment based on opinions and views, especially when there's really no way to prove the absolute veracity of either. And finally, this one. Unity is not found in agreement, but rather in lordship. Unity is not found in agreement. It's found in the lordship of Jesus Christ. Christ on the cross for us. Christ alive today, resurrected to give us new life. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all, Redemption Arcadia. I really do hope to see you soon. But in the meantime, um, if you want to get connected through email or whatever, the staff is available. We'd love to hear from you. God bless. Have a great week.